This morning we're going to read a couple of scriptures, uh, Isaiah 53 and then uh, Luke chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me there. Uh, we'll read Isaiah first and then, and then Luke. Uh, before uh, we turn to God's Word, I do want to uh, offer a word of reflection and looking back. Last week uh, after worship, we had our, uh, our first Advent celebration where uh, families gathered together and kids learned about Advent and we feasted and fellowshiped together. And I, I was just blown away by uh, the event and by the fellowship we shared in. And I was blessed by it, and I wanted to offer a word of thanks to, to Patricia, but most especially to her team from her Children's Council, and just to say thank you to her Children's Council for all, for all of their efforts that they put into that, making it such an awesome, uh, awesome event. So uh, would you join me in thanking the Children's Council for that? Uh, Isaiah 53, uh, verse 10, just verse 10, uh, reading that and then flipping over to, to Luke 1. Uh, hear the word of the Lord. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him, the will of the Lord shall prosper. And then Luke chapter 1, uh, we'll flip over and we'll begin uh, this, the story of, of Elizabeth. Uh, and we're going to be reading together just uh, beginning in verse 5. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was getting on in years. And then continuing on, uh, we're going to skip over to, uh, chapter, to verse 21, and it reads, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. And he kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And then it concludes, After those days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, This is what the Lord has done for me. When he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. This is God's word offered to us in its reading and in its hearing. So we give thanks to the Lord God Almighty. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Gracious and holy God, indeed we do give you thanks for your word. For all that's revealed therein, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes that we would see. Open our ears that we would hear. Open our minds that we would come to know and understand your word. Open our hearts that we would feel its power. Then by your grace, I ask, oh God, that you would open our hands, that we would offer grace to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That word uh, at the end of Elizabeth's story, a, a very testimony from Elizabeth's heart, uh, we hear of the great joy that she had in, in knowing that she was going to, to bear a son 
uh, for Zechariah and for the Lord. But there's also in, in that an acknowledgement of, of something that the God is doing beyond that, 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 that she has had her disgrace taken away from her. That, that, that she was a disgraced woman amongst all the people. And she lived with that disgrace. She lived in a state of perpetual shame. Wherever she went in her community, amongst her people, with her family, with her extended family, with her husband's family, amongst his, his, his co-workers in, in the temple, all, uh, all of her life was just bathed in shame disgrace it's an incredibly powerful experience not just emotion i don't want to just classify it as emotion i want to say it's it's a powerful experience that that each and every one of us can relate to uh there are some that say that 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 shame is a very is woven into the very fabric of our lives that each and every one of us have known shame and if we if we have not known shame we're actually a sociopath so, so, so choosing to claim shame is actually a good thing. It's that or sociopath. Uh, so, so we can relate to Elizabeth in this, that she lives in disgrace, that she experiences shame, and, and, and maybe our, ours might not permeate uh, her, her public life in the same way, but each of us carry it and can relate to it. But I want to first look at how did Elizabeth carry this public shame? How was she a woman of disgrace? It, it, it begins in a reference from Deuteronomy 7, verse 14. Deuteronomy 7, verse 14. It, it identifies the, the very public uh, a way that that culture understood having children. It, it, it says this in Deuteronomy. This is, this is about being God's chosen people. It says, you shall be the most blessed among peoples with neither ster- sterility nor barrenness among you or your livestock. You will not be barren because you're my chosen people. So culturally, any woman who experiences trouble having kids would be seen culturally as one not chosen by God. One who is not a part of God's blessing. So you walk with that. And you carry that in that culture. And think about that word barrenness. God, I hope we don't use that word anymore. Barren? To, 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 to say that a woman is Barren. I mean, barren like draws up images in our mind of of deserts, dried up, withered, fruitless. Those are the images that come to mind when we think of barren. We think empty, without, when we think of the word barren. And so to apply that to a woman, that was the cultural term for not being able to have kids in that day barren and so everywhere elizabeth walked the wife of zechariah she carried this shame one outside of god's chosen people one outside of god's blessing blessing one fruitless barren and it carried with her as disgrace and shame 
a woman's role in the culture that we're speaking to in Jesus' day, to begin with, women were, were, were second-class citizens or, or worse. Uh, they, 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 were, they were lower than men, and, and when you think of the, the hierarchy of social status, uh, you would have to go pretty far down the social status of men before you could identify where a woman would fall. And so second-class citizens, at, at best... And then the role of a woman in that culture, first and foremost, was to provide their husband a son so that their family name would carry on. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't about let's have lots of kids so we could be sure the farm can be tended to. Right? It wasn't, let's be sure we could have, we, we, could, we, we could bring in the harvest with just our chirins, right? That, that, it, that wasn't it. It wasn't about how many kids you had related to, to agriculture. It was primarily a, a woman's role was to have their husband, a son, to carry on the family name. So if you as a woman began as, as a second-class citizen or worse in the culture, if you couldn't fulfill your primary role as a woman to have a son to carry on your husband's family name, then you would be even below that. Amongst women, you would be the lowest. And so whenever you imagine what Elizabeth experienced, you have to put all of that into the framework of our understanding so that when she says, uh, uh, this is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably upon me and took away the disgrace I have endured among the people, you have to understand that all of this is put into the mix and all of that emotion is coming up from within and all of the disgrace and the shame that she has been bathed in has, has now been released from her in a powerful and profound way. She was a woman of shame, and now she's a woman who's experienced blessing in the love of God. Public disgrace, not, not, just, not just private disgrace. This is uh, a disgrace that actually uh, uh, people uh, inflicted upon her. It wasn't something that she just created in her own mind's eye. And, and we know that we have biblical examples of the way in which uh, one would torture another because they were barren. In Genesis chapter 16 verses 1 through 6, we, we see the example of Sarah and, and Hagar and, and, and Abraham. And here, here's, here's, here's the story. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, bore him no Children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, you see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. You see, I'm not, I'm not chosen. I'm not a part of God's blessing. So go into my slave girl. It may, be, uh, it, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Ab after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave him to her husband, Abram, as a wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she, she had seen that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. A slave girl looked with contempt 
on her mistress, on her master. Then Sarah went to Abram, may the wrong you have done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she could see, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. She comes to her husband. She is broken. Layers deep in brokenness, because now she has the ridicule, the ridicule of a slave upon herself. But Abram said to Sarah, your slave girl is in your power. Do as you please with her. Then Sarah, Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. See, this ridicule, this, this disgrace, this shame wasn't, wasn't something that was up here or in here, but it was, it was public. It was poured out from one to another, layer upon layer so that that as others acknowledged her emptiness her barrenness it would have been waited upon her there's another example of that first samuel uh, ver, uh chapter one verse three through six uh, this is the story uh, of, of of samuel's birth and, and what leads up to it first samuel uh, chapter 1, verse 3 through 6, it says, Now this man used to go up year by year from his town to worship and sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the, where the uh, two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanai sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Peniah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. You see? Another example, example in the culture of how uh, women who were not barren would ridicule women who were barren. So this was systematic shaming, not just shame. So whenever Elizabeth comes and says, this is what the Lord has done for me, when he looked favorably upon me and took away the disgrace I've endured among my people, took away that disgrace. The story, though, requires us to, to ask a question. The story says that the Lord has looked favorably upon me, took away my disgrace among the people, and yet, and yet after she had conceived, she draws out into seclusion, the word of God says, for how long? For five months. Elizabeth enters into seclusion for five months. Now you, you might remember that, that, that uh, the angel Lord comes to Mary and tells Mary that she's going to conceive Jesus. And then, and, 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 and then as a part of that story from the angel uh, the, the angel of the Lord says to, to Mary, hey, Elizabeth has now been pregnant six months. And then Mary goes to her. So it's like six and a half months before Mary gets to Elizabeth. But for the first five months after conception, Elizabeth remains in seclusion. Why would you do that? It wasn't... It wasn't culturally uh, appropriate uh, to, to do so. There's, there's no rhythm or rhyme or reason uh, uh, as to, to why this would have taken place as, as to some sort of uh, Jesus day norm. So all we could do is, is try to get into her mind's eye and try to understand 
what would have drawn her out of that. She's experienced this great joy. She's experienced this great release, release from shame, release from disgrace. She's going to conceive. She's going to be a part of God's blessing. All of these things are taking place. Why would she not just go out and tell the world? Why would she not go and tell her parents, Zechariah's parents, just tell everybody? I see it going something like this. And maybe it actually happened. And that's when she decided to go into seclusion. I see her going out to a girlfriend, maybe one of the few girlfriends that she actually had because she was a woman of disgrace. And her going to her girlfriend and saying, you're not going to believe this, but I'm pregnant. And her girlfriend looking on her and saying, you're the wife of a mute husband who is really, really stinking old You've never had a kid and you're never going to have a kid. Why are you lying? For the first five months before a woman is showing, what incentive was there for anyone to believe her? So she had to sit back and not experience the full release of the shame because she couldn't receive it from the rest of the public she had to wait until she was showing so that people would actually say wow you might have a mute husband but at least you're pregnant right uh i mean something something had to go on for her to withdraw and i think that it was probably that there was layer upon layer of ridicule that she had experienced that made her realize that she couldn't release her shame until the rest of the community could do it for her. Shame is something each and every one of us exists uh, in. At one point or another in our lives, we all experience shame as more than an emotion, but as a reality. And it comes to us in different and in different ways with variant, varying potencies. Um, I remember some years ago, uh, there was a snow day. Uh, and, and it was snow day not, for the I, not just for the ISD and for the kids, but it was also snow day for the parents. Amen? Uh, it was snow day for the parents and no one had to go to work. And so whenever... Uh, Lauren and I woke up that morning and we got the call, snow day, everything closed, don't go anywhere. What did we do? We decided to have a party. We decided that we needed to have a party and we needed to invite everybody over because everybody's out, no one's going anywhere, and so we're just going to get folks together and we're going to have a party. And so we did. And we invited folks over and people were there before noon. And we spent the entire day partying snow day style. And I remember it vividly because uh, as the day went on uh, from before noon through the afternoon, uh, more people showed up and everybody that came in came in with a new bottle of alcohol. Oh, you know those parties. Okay, so I'm not the only one. Uh, And so my coffee table, not coffee table, uh, island, island, not called to island in the kitchen had bottles bottles of wine beer and liquor just all over it 
And I remember as the snow day went on, I got drunk. And, uh, and, and I, remember, I, I remember vividly the realization that I had just gotten drunk on snow day. And um, uh, like with a whole bunch of people gathered. And I ended up going back to my room and just like laying down. Shut the door, locked it, house full of people, everybody's partying, snow day style. And I'm in the room drunk by myself. And, uh, and now, there, uh, very few of, of the people that I was there with uh, still live in, 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 the, uh, in the area, so I don't see them often. But whenever I do see them, uh, you know what I hear about? Do you remember Snow Day? That was crazy. Jason got drunk, and it was nuts, and you were so, you, you, you missed half the party, Jason. What are you doing? And so every time, every time I see one of them, I hear about Snow Day. And uh, and it cuts. I hate it. I just, you know, um, and 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 you know, I don't think it's I don't think it's me being the butt of a joke because I I'm used to that. Like I I do that to myself often. Um, uh, I think it goes deeper. There's, there's a, a great uh, professor um, that I recommend to everyone that does some TED Talks, and, and her books are awesome. Her name is Brene Brown, and she talks a lot about, uh, about shame. She actually came on the scene publicly when she was talking about vulnerability at a TED Talk, and uh, it, it was kind of a more local TED Talk, and, uh, and she talked about vulnerability and, and innovation and courage and creativity and, and vulnerability being the incubator of all of those things. And it got such rave reviews. But, but then uh, when she, she went on to her, her more public and, 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 and greater TED Talk uh, that, that now has 10 million views. And so, like, I'm not the only one that would recommend it to you because 10 million people have now seen it. Um, uh, sh- she opens up the, the next TED Talk by saying, uh, I realized everybody liked me talking about creativity, courage, and innovation, and, and they kind of wanted to dismiss the vulnerability, but I need to actually take it one layer, uh, one step earlier. And, and people want me to go forward into those things because that's more comfortable. I, I needed to tell you that the root of, uh, that, that, that the root of our need for vulnerability uh, begins with shame. She says, I didn't discover the need for us to talk about vulnerability until I discovered how potent and how p- prominent shame is for all of us as an experience in life. And so I wonder, like when I think about snow day, I think about why is it that, why is it that I experience snow day uh, as shame? I experience it as shame. I carry it as shame. Why do I experience it like that rather than experience it as guilt? Guilt would be associated with sin, uh, a one-time occurrence saying, I'm, and, and, and I'm using some of Brene Brown stuff here, so this isn't all original Jason. Guilt would be, uh, would be aligned with, I made a mistake. 
I, I committed a sin. Uh, but, but shame, shame is, is something uh, more, something uh, more akin to I, I am a mistake. I am a failure, not I, I failed, I am a failure, like identity wrapped up in it. And so for each of us, uh, our experience of, of shame is going to be uniquely different because I had to draw back into myself and ask myself, why is it this snow day uh, is something for me that, that's, uh, that's, that's shame, not guilt? Why do I view that as I am a mistake, not I made a mistake? Why do I view that as I, I am a failure, not I failed? And, and, it's, and it's because that's a part of, a part of my, my family, history, a part of my culture. Culture. Uh, many of you don't know this about me. I didn't drink a drop of alcohol uh, until I was 21 years old. And it's because uh, so many people in my family, my extended family, were alcoholics. And I know I have an addictive personality. I know that, that, that when I start something, I want to bring it to completion. Like that's part of, uh, like, like and, and, and I want to just keep going and going and going. And I have, I have that like woven into the fabric of my being. And so I, I was always real hesitant and scared uh, to be the one to, to use alcohol and didn't know how I was going to be able to do it and, and hold myself in restraint. And so in that, in that fear, I decided, okay, I'm not going to drink anything until I'm 21. And in my entire life, I've been drunk less than 10 times. Uh, but, but each and every one of those times, I remember very specifically because each and every one of those I carry as failure. Like I am failure because I failed to honor commitments I made to myself. I failed to honor commitments I made to God to not be that. And so for me, I've carried snow day as shame, not guilt. I don't know how you relate to Elizabeth, but I do believe each and every one of us experience shame in one form or another. And this, this, this season, this this time of, of waiting for Jesus, this time of, of, of anticipation for Christ coming is a time when we're able to, to, to look uh, to that text from Isaiah that says that, that, that God, God Almighty was pleased, it says pleased to crush, other versions say bruise, uh, other, other versions say afflict his own son, his very son, crush his son. Please to do it for all of us so that each and every one of us would know that, that he took on not just our sin, but he also took on our shame. That he would be publicly beaten, publicly bruised, publicly stripped, publicly killed, shame. And Jesus would take that from us and God would be pleased to do it as a sign of his love for us. That's how much God loves you. That's how much God loves me. 
that, that, that wherever we go, whenever we think of shame, I want you to, to, to go there and identify it and say, I am ashamed of snow day. And when you find yourself there, I want you to say, God loves me. And let those two things reside in pure and holy and faithful tension in opposition to one another. Knowing that they cannot coexist, but they have to be ripped apart from one another. And shame must die because God's love lives. And it lives in you as it lives in me. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, um, God, we know um, what it means to live in, uh, in regret and in guilt. We also know what it means to live in shame. Lord, whatever shame exists in this sanctuary this morning, I ask that you would powerfully exercise it from this space. Totally remove it and replace it with the power of your love that we know in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. A love that never fails, that never ends, that is always striving, always struggling for our good. We ask, O oh God, that you would uh, meet with us as we continue in worship, as we enter into this time of Holy Communion and, and also this time of offering. Lord, we ask that, that all that takes place in this time of offering as we, as we uh, give a portion of what you have bestowed upon us to the kingdom-building work of your church, so we ask, O oh God, that you would bless it, that you would multiply it, that it would bear fruit uh, in this community and in the world for the, the cause of Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.